Good morning again. So good to see all of you. To be able to worship together. And if this is your first time with us this morning, um, we are in a study in the book of Joshua. And so we are um, going to be in Joshua chapter 5. You heard Quentin read from us from 1 Peter chapter 2, um, which is a beautiful illustration, uh, I believe, of what God is doing and what he is calling us to um, here in John chapter 5, which is why uh, we wanted uh, to start there and to focus our attention on the words of Peter about who we are as believers, as followers of Christ. If you haven't been with us, we have been working our way through the book of Joshua, and I'll give you just a very quick recap, sort of a summary of the events that we have seen uh, throughout these first four chapters in preparation of chapter five. But Moses has died. Moses, who had led the people of God, the Israelites, all throughout the desert, had led them out of, ex- uh, or out of Egypt through the Exodus and then all over as they were waiting to enter the promised land. He's died and Joshua has been called to take over uh, for him. Joshua uh, is told and is called to remember the promises of God, the promise that he had made to the people that he would give them this land. The promised land was going to be theirs. He had reminded them of that. And out of that promise, he said, be strong and Courageous, remembering what I've already said, remembering what I have done in your life, what I've promised to you, um, gain strength from that. And so Joshua is told over and over again in the early chapter to be strong and courageous, uh, remembering that promise. He then goes to the people and he says, hey, it's time. We're about to enter the promised land. He leads them to the bank of the Jordan River. They uh, are then told by God that the priest should go ahead of them in the crossing of the river through the Ark of the Covenant, which sort of was the symbol of God's presence with his people. Those priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant are, gonna, are to go and step down into the water to get their feet wet in the water. And when they did that, that demonstration of faith, the waters would split open and the people would be able to cross over on dry land. They then arrive after arriving there into the promised land, they arrive and the people that they have been told to eliminate, the Canaanites and really all of the people that currently possess the promised land, they have retreated in some sense, not really left their place yet, but in their hearts retreated in fear. Rahab in chapter two told us, excuse me, chapter three told us of that story um, of their uh, fear and the anxiety that they faced, the challenges that they faced. That was chapter two, by the way. I got that right the first time. Uh, and so, uh, uh, but they uh, uh, then now after seeing the Lord split the, the River Jordan wide open, now it's not just the God they've heard about, but now the God they've seen in action. God tells his people to set up a memorial to remember this act so that every time the Israelites pass by this place called Gilgal, which is where God moved, they would say they would remember what God had done here. And so here in chapter five, the beginning of chapter five, verse one says this, which is sort of a carryover from the end of chapter four. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, this is those that they cross over into the promised land. These are the kings that resided there to the west. And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over their hearts. This is once again, the same language that we saw Rahab use. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. They had heard the stories of this God and these people, and now they saw with their own eyes what God, this God, could do, the power that he possessed. And so they're here in the promised land, 
And once they arrive in the promised land, they know that they're going to have to eliminate all of these people, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, all of those ites that live there presently. They're going to have to be moved out. And so they're ready to do battle. This is why, by the way, why did Joshua send the two spies across the river to go? And when they met, went and met Rahab, the reason that they went across was because he wanted to be prepared, in a sense, militaristically prepared for what stood before them. But here we have a very strange episode to begin the Israelites' time in the promised land. Notice that the people there, their hearts have melted before them. There's no longer any spirit to fight in them. And when we think about this from a militaristic standpoint and what Joshua has been told will have to happen, you would think that the time is right now to strike. We have the phrase, strike while the iron's hot. If we think very pragmatically, we would think this is the exact right time for the people to go and attack. But here we get this really strange episode. It sort of seems to just stop everything down. And God just says, no, that's not what we're going to do right now. This is kind of like the Coach Beard episode of Ted Lasso in season two. It's a little strange. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It seems out of place. But unlike that strange episode on TV, this is a beautiful story that teaches us a lot. Very much teaches us about how our God works and what is most important to him. And so what does God tell Joshua to do? Not go and strike right immediately, go into Jericho and take down the enemies that existed there. No, he says, stop. At that time in verse two, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Again, a very uncomfortable Very strange episode here as to what God calls Joshua to do, but Joshua, or God explains exactly why he has Joshua do this. Rather than going on the offensive immediately, he says, no, you must circumcise all of the people. And he says, as he's explaining this, he says that the children... That, are about, that have entered into the land. This is the second generation of God's people who had, after they had been taken out of Egypt through the Exodus, these are the children of those people who left in the Exodus. Well, as they were moving about going along their way, they forgot one of the things that God had instructed them to do. And that was to circumcise their children, their male children. They were to be circumcised at birth. God had set this up all the way back in Genesis 17 when God makes this promise to Abraham that he will make him a father of many nations. This is the covenant that he made and the covenant is going to be marked 
and sort of symbolized through circumcision. God said, this is how my people will be identified. This is how the symbol that will set them apart from all of the rest of the world. So that generation that had been led out of Egypt through the Exodus, they go out into the wilderness and they forget. And notice in verse 6 what God's word says. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. There's more than one circumstance or more than one situation that we see these people forget who God is and do not obey his word. But in one of the things that they disobeyed was they stopped circumcising their children. They stopped doing what God had called them to do. They stopped being obedient to God's word, his command for their life. And so he allowed all of that generation to perish. And now this second generation would be the ones that would be allowed to enter the promised land. But before God is going to allow this promised land to be populated and for his people to continue to spread out and go out and do work in his name, he's going to ensure that they remember the covenant that he had made with them and the responsibility they had to him as well, the obedience that he commanded of them. And that obedience, as strange as it might sound to us, was that they would circumcise their children. Circumcision is the mark, the symbol that said, these people are my people. Today, we practice baptism in water as the symbol. I preached on this a number of weeks ago. But baptism is the symbol that marks out the people of God. I said a few weeks ago that baptism is what we do to tell the world that we are Christians to tell others that we are Christians, that we are baptized. By the way, this is a perfect opportunity for me to tell you about one of the things that's on your card this week. Next Sunday morning is Baptism Sunday. We're gonna gather not here in this place. If you're a guest with us, we're gonna gather at the Melissa High School Performing Arts Center for one service at 1045 where we will hear the testimonies of people professing their faith in what Jesus has done in their life and being baptized in response as the symbol that says, I am a Christian. And so this is what God had given his people before Christ in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Circumcision was the mark that said, I am a child of God. I am an Israelite. I'm one of God's people. And so this generation, though, had forgotten this. They had forgotten what they were supposed to do. And this teaches us, as I said, it's not just an uncomfortable story. This teaches us something very important. Very important about our God. God cares much more about our holiness and our obedience than he cares about what we do. All of the things that we engage in and the things that we do, yes, they can have importance, they can matter, but they never matter to God more than our holiness. Who we are in our lives, at the depths of our soul, the way that we interact and respond to God. That is what is most important to God. We remember who God is. This is what holiness looks like. We remember who he is, and we align our desires with his desires. We align our hearts with his hearts, our beliefs, our goals, all of the things that might sort of capture our minds and our hearts and give us sort of take uh, mind space in our day. It's about pursuing the holiness of God. 
And this is what God was reminding his people. Before you go to war, before you go and do the things that I have told you to do, that I've asked you to engage in, just remember that your obedience, your holiness is what matters most to me. He's teaching them this. In verse 10 and following, you'll read of chapter five that they enjoyed the Passover meal. The Passover meal was a reminder to God's people of what he had done in Egypt, how he had led them out of slavery, ultimately how he had redeemed them from death, protected them from death under the blood, looking and pointing to Jesus in that story. And they enjoyed the Passover for the very first time as a reminder of God's faithfulness. And he's saying to his people here, stop. I know it feels like now is the time to act. Now is the time to go to Jericho and to do the battle and to take down all of these things. That's not what I'm most concerned about. What I'm concerned about most is your holiness. This is an important lesson for us to remember. There's so much to unpack as we think about what that means. God's holiness is most important. One of the things that you might experience whether you've been a part of this church for a long time or if you're new here as a guest, you'll begin to experience these things. But we strive in all that we do to not be pragmatic. Again, getting caught up in the who, what, when, where, and why. Now, And I'll tell you, that's sometimes counter to my own DNA and my own heart. I very much want to get caught up in how we're supposed to do things, what we're supposed to do, when we're supposed to do them, all of those things as a church family. But that's not what God cares most about. And so we have to push that desire down and say, no, 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 let's not get caught up in all the things that we're supposed to do before we remember who God is and who we're supposed to be. Holy people set apart by God. Remember who we are, 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why are you all of those things? Why did God, you didn't do that, you didn't achieve that. That wasn't because you kind of striked where the iron was hot. No, all of those things that you are are because of why? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are these things. He has created us to be these things, a holy people set apart for his own possession that we might be a people who proclaim the excellencies of who he is. That we might tell the world of how great and mighty God is that we might tell the world that as we sang, we are unworthy, we're in darkness, but God, out of his mercy and love, called us into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God cares most about our holiness and our obedience to him. And he's not going to allow his people to go and engage and do the things in his name when there is hidden sin, in a sense. There's hidden disobedience. One of the things that grieves my heart as just about as much as anything that I hear about and know about in the world is when men called to shepherd God's people fall in sin. 
we see and read, and all too often, unfortunately, in recent days, we see moral failures, people who are called to care for God's people as pastors falling. You want to know why that happens? Because God's word is true, and he says that sin will always be found out. And God is not going to allow people to do work pragmatically, great work, big work, things that seem to be transforming the world when there's hidden disobedience. And so it's in his mercy, as painful it is to so many as as painful it is to me, that he allows that sin to come into the light because he says, I'm not going to let my people do all of these great things when there's disobedience in their hearts. For our own lives, so often we strive to put forth this beautiful picture of who we are. Our Instagram stories are amazing. They are unbelievably holy. They look so Christ-like. They look so perfect. They are curated to just project exactly what we intend them to project. And then within, there's disobedience. There's a lack of personal holiness. That should bring conviction to our souls, brothers and sisters. We should not be okay with that. That should not be something that we're proud of, that we're able to put forth this picture because here's what I can tell you. Ultimately, God knows and it will be found out. That mess that is hidden behind that veil of the beautiful stories, the beautiful pictures, it will come to light. And here's the amazing thing about the way God works. If we would choose to just bring that to light, we would learn, we would know that we receive mercy. We hide and we try to peel back. We try to not allow anything to be seen of the reality of our lives, the reality of the brokenness that we've experienced to protect ourselves. And yes, I understand there's some real reasons why we might do these things. But what God desires of his people, what God desires of us is that we would be a holy people. And he promises us that if we would allow that and we would just boldly come to him and say, this, Lord, is broken. This is messed up in my life. I've been disobedient in these areas. We would find his mercy. Notice again how he deals with the people. These are people who for a generation have been disobedient. An entire generation have been disobedient. Did God still allow his people to enter the promised land? He sure did. He didn't say, I'm done with you because of your disobedience. He didn't say, get out of here because of your disobedience. He received them. He led them in. His presence went before them. He delivered a great miracle to lead them into the promised land. He showed his mercy and his power and the depth of his love, even in the midst of disobedience. But before he let them go any further, he said, we're going to stop. We're going to do things my way. You've tried to do them your way long enough. We're going to do them my way. You will be obedient. You will be a holy people. And so you'll circumcise your children because it's what I commanded you to do as a symbol that you are my people. Before you go out and do all of these things in my name, you will be my people in your hearts, in your souls. So this is what he instructs Joshua to do. Finally, as we think about this, just consider how 
this ran so counter to everything that seemed as if God had set up for his people to do. Again, all of the people that were opposed to God and opposed to his people had been melted with fear. Their hearts, they had no reason to fight. They were unwilling to step forward and fight. And so it seemed that if there was any time for his people to go on the offensive, the time was right now. Let's move forward. How often we think to ourselves, this is what I'm supposed to do. Look at how God has opened the doors for this to happen. Do you know what God cares way more, way more about? <laughs> he may open doors. He may close doors. He is involved in all of those things, yes. But that is not what should dictate whether we move or don't move. What should dictate that is our relationship to him our holiness, our obedience to him. And so often we look at these open doors or we look at these situations and we think to ourselves pragmatically, this is what I have to do. This is exactly what I've had to do. And it, look, the people's hearts have melted before them. This is when we should go to war, Joshua. This is when we should go on the offensive. Why are we gonna sit back and do this thing? This seems strange. We're gonna put ourselves in a very disadvantage militaristically, we're going to get to this in a moment, but the men are going to be laid up for eight days. No war, no battle, no army. It doesn't seem like this is the right time for all of these things. It seems like God has made it perfectly clear that the right time to go is right now. See, this is one of the lessons that we can learn. God isn't worried about his enemies. We are so caught up especially in our culture today, in defending God, going on the offensive for God, feeling as if it's our responsibility to take care of all of God's enemies, forgetting that our sovereign God sits on his throne and will deal with his enemies perfectly according to his perfect timing, and he doesn't need any of us to do that. So we're going to go to battle with this person. We're going to go on the offensive against this person. We're going to go to war with that neighbor. We're going to hate that individual. They're going to say this, and we're going to reply with this, all because it's our time to go to war in God's name. And God says, my enemies, I have no need for their fear to kill them or to destroy them. They will be destroyed. They will be wiped out exactly when I say they should. Your responsibility, children of God, is to be holy to demonstrate that you are my people. Symbolically, yes, through baptism, but in the way you live, are you a people of mercy and grace? Does the holiness of God that you possess through the Holy Spirit, is it reflected in the way that you live your lives? Or rather than the world seeing us as proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light, does he see us proclaiming the excellencies of some political figure, some cultural you know, attack, some, something out there in the world that has no significance on the holiness of God's people? I'm afraid that God's people are known more about what we're opposed to and what we're against than proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And being a people set apart as a holy people. And that's who God has called us to be. God will have the victory. He may use us as a part of that. He may not. What he is most concerned about, what matters to him, is the holiness, the obedience of his people that would reflect him to a dark, dark world.
We see, as these people are told to pause, that God's timing isn't our timing. God can conquer at any time. God can do exactly what he wants to do. I use this illustration in our men's Bible study, guys and ladies. We're going through the book of Joshua in our men's and women's Bible study, but I use this on Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. Every Tuesday morning right over there at 6 a.m. we're working through the book of Joshua. And I use this illustration on Tuesday. We, just last week we had some yellow jackets. We thought they were bees, but it reminded me of how often as a dad, when my boys were younger, the, the bee would come around and uh, for a few of my sons, it'd be the spider would come around and there was a, just a kind of the differing bugs that existed out there, that there was some fear and some anxiety. And if you have little children, you know what this looks like. When the bee shows up, chaos breaks out. They start jumping all around, running all over the place. There's a bee. But as dad, I'm not worried about a bee. I'll take care of the bee. You just be calm, be still, know that I am dad. <laughs> And we got the bee. I'll take care of the spider. I'll take care of those little things that are not as powerful as I am in the world. It's kind of as if God is saying this. We run around in chaos. The bee is going to get us. This is going to happen. What's going to happen here? And God is saying, these people, I will deal with them whenever I want to deal with them, however I want to deal with them. Just calm down. Just relax. Trust me. Know that my timing is perfect. And this is what it says in verse 8. While the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained there in their places in the camp until they were healed. Until they were healed. All of the men had been circumcised, unable to go to war, and they remain in their camps while they are healing. And look at how God, in his perfect sovereignty, being God, not being overly concerned about all of these things, being able to, because, guess why he, isn't, he doesn't have fear? Because he's in total control. They are resting, they are healing at the exact same time when all of the enemies are stricken with fear. They're unable to attack because of the fear that God had put in their hearts, while these people are unable to go on the offensive because they're being obedient to what God had called them to be, doing the things that God had called them to do. This is what God was doing, and he was working out his perfect timing. So even in the human sort of circumstances, in the human situation, we see God working, something as simple as giving his people time to rest while the enemies are stricken with fear. Ultimately, this teaches us, this story teaches us that the battle is the Lord's when it comes to dealing with darkness and with the enemy, the enemies of God and all those things that would stand against him. Skip down to verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, it seemed that while the people, after they had, had received the Passover meal, and that while they were in the midst of their healing, Joshua kind of walks out to go gaze and look at Jericho. And it says, while Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? 
And he said, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals for your, uh, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua surely had in his mind as his people were crossing the river that it was time to go into battle. But God says to his people, I care more about your holiness and your obedience than this battle. Don't worry about that. You do what I told you to do. And then as this is happening, Joshua, right at the end of this sort of picture of this time, Joshua goes out and he meets the commander of the Lord's army. Notice Joshua asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he just says, no. I just love that. No, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. We don't know exactly who this person is that Joshua met. Some people, some teachers and scholars believe that this was a pre-incarnate Christ, that Joshua was meeting Jesus. It definitely was not just an angel because you don't fall on your feet. You don't take off your sandals when you're face to face. You might fall on your feet or fall on your face in fear, but you don't take off the sandals off your feet when you're meeting with an angel. We see that all throughout scripture and they just talk to angels. But here it was definitely someone that was more powerful than simply an angel. God's word isn't very clear to us. It's not explicit. It doesn't say this was Jesus, but here's what we can know. Whether it was a pre-incarnate Christ or not, it was definitely someone pointing to Jesus, what we call a type of Christ. This was the commander of the Lord's army, and what he's telling Joshua, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground, and I will deal with what's happening over here. As you gaze and look at Jericho and perhaps even are wondering and fearful and anxious, how will we handle this battle? How will we handle this situation? God sends his commander, his armies, and he says, this battle is mine to deal with. It's not yours, Joshua. You don't have to worry about this. What I want you to worry about day after day, moment by moment, is being the man that I have called you to be. Being obedient to my word. Living with a holiness about you. Joshua is told, is reminded through this story, exactly who owns the battle, who is going to deal with these situations. And for us, as we think about this, as we consider how we apply this to our lives, we think about the gospel, we can know that we have already won the battle. There is no battle to fight for us because Jesus has already won for us when he laid down his life for us. And we were adopted through his sacrifice as sons and daughters of almighty God. Again, if you are a child of God, what more do you need, friend? What more, what victory are you looking for if you know that you're a child of God? Unfortunately, we get so caught up in winning earthly battles, dealing with all of the things that are right in front of our eyes straight before us. And we forget that the battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's and the battle has already been won through Christ. And we can trust him 
And we can know him and we can have confidence in him. And so when we see all of the turmoil in the world, when we see all of the darkness in the world, we don't say to ourselves, yes, let's go to war. We say, yes, let's remember who won the battle for us. Let's reflect him to all of this brokenness. Let's tell his story into the darkness. We have been called into a marvelous light. Let us shine his light into the world because that's exactly why he did it. He called us a holy people, a people called by his name, a chosen race, a people of his own possessions that we might proclaim his excellencies. Whose excellencies are you proclaiming? Whose battles are you fighting? There is no battle for the people of God because that battle has already been won through Christ. And we can rest and we can be a people for his own possession, a holy people set apart for his purposes. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow your word, your teaching to sink deeply into our hearts. I pray that we would be the people that you've set us apart to be, Lord. We would remember what you have done for us, Jesus the battle that you already fought against sin and death, the victory that you have already won over sin and death on our behalf. And we would realize our purpose. You allow us to live today so that we might proclaim the excellencies of you, that we might take your light into the darkness. Forgive us, Lord, for feeling as if it's our responsibility to go and do battle in your name when we have completely forgotten and lost our calling to be obedient and holy before you. Forgive us, Lord. And we come to you asking forgiveness for forgiveness. I do that, Lord, I know so well the mercy that you show us. I don't come to you asking forgiveness for forgiveness, timidly waiting for you to strike me down and cast me off. No, I come to you saying, Lord, I want to be used by you. I know that there are times when I get so caught up in the things of this world that I forget who I am. I forget what you have done. I forget who I'm called to be. And so I ask, Lord, fill me with your spirit so that I might reflect you that my life would be known as a life. I'd be known as a man who is holy. I don't want to be known as a man, a pastor, a preacher who's strong, who's wise, who has it all figured out, who's, who's powerful, who's any of these things, Lord. I want to be known as a man who is holy. I want to be known as a man who looks like his Savior, who looks like the God that he proclaims. So in all that I do, Lord, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help us to be that type of people. Let this church be known 
as a church of holy people who proclaim the excellencies of a Savior who is worthy of that proclamation, who is worthy of everything we say about him. We pray all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.